Hello everyone, it is Simon the Science Communicator talking to you again from his car on the way home from work. I haven't done one of these in a while because, reasons, um, my mental health has been particularly bad um, ever since the autism diagnosis. I have sort of been on this slow boat of burn of understanding my own trauma and my trauma responses and where does the mask begin and end? Where does Simon begin and end? And that took a turn recently when I started to connect with a lot of trauma in my past. And I'm really honestly not sure what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, I haven't really got any prepared. I don't know really what I'm going to talk about. So I'm just going to talk for a while. Um, so I've learnt a lot recently about myself and... And... Well, let me preface this. I have trauma responses of some... I have the trauma responses and I'm probably not that far away from a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I have the responses of a person who was significantly traumatized and abused in their childhood. But there is no event. There is no single acute point source that I can point to, stupid words, that says that's what did it to me. It's protracted. And that was because of the undiagnosed autism. Um... I have recently asked a friend, and I'm probably going to ask more people this question, did I seem lonely when I was younger? And I got the answer, you seem detached, uh, not detached, distant, distant, but you did seem lonely, that there was more to you than we all saw, but the, it was hidden depths. That was validating because <laughs> that, that was how I felt, like I've described my childhood previously as literally screaming into my own skull. Not so much my childhood, my, my early, young, late adolescence and early adulthood. Um, screaming into my own head, desperate for any kind of intimate human connection, whether that be romantic or non-romantic, because I just wasn't getting it. I didn't know what it was like. Um, my autistic brain doesn't recognise emotion. Like, my emotions need to be a certain way before I will input them as a thing. I've got absolutely shithouse verbal memory, so I don't remember anything that people say to me. So this all convoluted into feeling isolated and, and disconnected, chronically so. And to that, and that, what's the thing I said recently? I, I fell head over heels in love with any woman that showed me even the slightest hint of human connection to my absolute detriment most of the time. And so why am I bringing that up? This, this again, I'm just gonna, just gonna roll with it. That is what has led to me having sort of having a traumatic youth. It's these events that go on. There is, uh, yeah, these are some of the costs to being autistic. I don't want to say gently autistic or high functioning because they're all stupid ass terms. You are on a spectrum. And my particular spectrum was very obvious, like very subtle. Very sorry, just people randomly walking into the road. Very subtle, so no one picked up on it. I mean, some of the signs were there, especially the way I learned to walk was really weird. Some of my physical attributes are really weird. Um, behavior patterns, people patterns, communication patterns, things like that, a lot of grief over I should have been in hindsight it is very obvious but that's hindsight um, I require a lot of context before I understand what in the name of Jesus anyone is friggin talking about 
I require an awful lot of context. And my parents used to crack the absolute shits at me about that and call me arrogant and egotistical for needing that extra information. These are the subtle ways in which, and that is just my experience, you get 10 autistic people in a room and you get 10 wildly different types or you get 10 subtly different types. You meet, when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. We're all different, all different. Um, so imagine life successes. Imagine if you're going to buy a new car and you want to talk to the person and you want to ask questions and you want to be forthright and you want to be, you want to negotiate and you want what you want and you want it for the best price. You go to do that and you realize you have made absolutely no impact on their negotiation, on their, their end of the stick. You've made no meaningful communication. Everything has gone over their heads and you've gotten to the sticker price with no alteration. Let's call that autism tax. And it is. Life is harder in a neurotypical world for people with autism. And let's add on all the interse intersectionalities. I am a white male autistic person, so I have, I, my autistic journey is not made harder. And I don't like, I have the standard allergic response to the word privilege, and I have to break it down to, I, my life is not made harder by certain elements. Because, and I'll go into that in a second, it's called rejection sensitive dysphoria, and it's what's really altered my life the most. My life is not made more difficult by being a person of color, a, a woman or a female, or, an, a, you know, sorry, I'm butchering this sentence, but you get the idea. My, my autism is not, my journey with autism is not made more difficult by those. So in terms of a, difficult life, a difficulty of life with autism, I'm probably at the top of the tree and the most and traumatic, but then you get down into comparing people's pain. And if you want to be empath empathic to people, you can't compare pain. Because we all feel pain the way we feel pain. Your brain cannot tell the difference between, and this leads into the, uh, the rejection sensitivity thing, your brain cannot tell the difference, this is everyone, this is all neurotypicals, cannot tell the difference between physical pain, so you've been stabbed in the arm or the heart, and social rejection or romantic rejection. It is physical pain. It translates into physical pain. For an autistic person, we have a bit of a quirk that we feel emotional pain in our bodies more strongly. So to feel rejection as an autistic person is to be stabbed in the heart. It feels worse. RSD, so rejection sensitive dysphoria, is most often associated with ADHD. However, ADHD and autism have a very codependent, not codependent, what's the right word? Comorbid, comorbid relationship. So, a lot of my life has been defined by rejection and the fear of rejection. And this is not a point source rejection, this is just a generic rejection. What if I get laughed at? You might brush that off and say, well, I get laughed at, it's not the end of the world. For me, it is the end of the world. It's, just, it's literally the end of the world. Like, I, I can't, I cannot be the subject of jokes. I can't. My brain does not understand the difference between lighthearted jesting and literally being stabbed in the face. That there is no, there is no difference. It feels the same. And so this escalation of a pain response is, is why it is trouble to compare abuse, to compare trauma. 
because you can't go into my brain and quantify numerically exactly what level of pain I have experienced from a particular event or abuse or trauma. And just as much as I cannot go into another person's brain and quantify exactly how much pain they have gotten from their version. So we can't compare them. And considering basically the world is just a place of suffering Olympics, who was the most traumatized, who has the most rights to be traumatized, because if you win, no one else can be traumatized except for you, and I'm bitter about that. I've had a bad, bad experiences on social media lately, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So where's the science communication in this? So this is still an act of communication. I'm telling you about some of the experiences that I have had, the reflections I've had on being an autistic person. And I've said a few words like rejection, sensitive dysphoria, autism, tax, late diagnosis. These are all sort of hot button buzzwords that you will see all over the internet, all over social media as people come to terms with this thing. Um, random piece of information, functional MRIs. So an fMRI is where it's not in the big circle of the machine, it's in, you've got electrodes on your skull and you can go about doing a thing so we get a good idea of what your brain state looks like while you're doing a certain task rather than lying inside an immobile giant metal cylinder. The activity that we associate with grief in the brain is as high when your dog dies or your pet dies as when a close family member or parent dies. It is also the same when you experience severe rejection in half of cases. Here's a fun thing. You have two responses to feeling rejected or hurt or embarrassed or exposed or caught when you're caught out lying or you're caught out abusing or any negative event happens, any socially negative event happens to you. You have two responses, you have broadly two responses. And well, there's more, but I'm only going to talk about two. You can feel guilty. Guilty is the recognition that you've done something wrong and you want to not, you want to fix it. Guilt can be a very powerful tool. Like anger. Anger is a warning sign that something's wrong. So it's a good tool and it energizes you to do something about it. Anger can be very, very powerful and very good for you to give you the impetus to do something. And guilt can be a very powerful tool to affect change in your life. Because if you're guilty about something, you don't want it to happen again. The other one is shame. Shame is horrifying. Shame is self-doubt. It is self-hatred. It is de- double. It is defensiveness. It is anxiety. It is uh, def- getting up, re- umbraged, and getting. I oh, know I didn't do anything wrong. Oh no, no, I'm fine. It's 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 not accepting. It's going through the stages of grief because you not you can't accept it that something you've done something wrong, or it's cognitive dissonance that you can't accept it. Shame is horrifying, and I'm gonna. The, the person you want to do to go read about shame is Brene Brown her stuff is fantastic well read the early stuff she's starting to turn into Oprah but anyway um, <laughs> it's not a popular opinion shame is incredibly destructive so when you when a person people who experience shame more than they experience guilt and this can come down to brain type if you or personality type or neuronal arrangement type or just genetics we don't really know you can be someone who experiences shame more than they experience guilt this is important 
People who experience shame and neurodivergent people are much more likely to experience shame if, they are un, if they're undiagnosed. If they're diagnosed, they have a better relationship with themselves or can have a better relationship with themselves. But shame is people are many times more likely to become depressed, angry, anxious, have mental health illnesses, have addictive disorders, have low life success, have low romantic success, low relationship success, low friends, low social success in their life, low career success, and are 10 times, or I think it's actually 13 times more likely to kill themselves. So shame is awful. And I'm not an expert on it. This is some of the stuff I've come across in my life. There's, it's the best way to put it. We have an evolutionary reason for why emotions exist. We do. They all have, they all serve a function. <coughs> if we've seen the movie Up, you realize that emotions are signals. That something is wrong. We've talked about anger. It's a sign that something is, needs to be alert, an alert that something is wrong. Sadness is a, is a cry for help. Crying is a, is a me- inbuilt mechanism we all have that says, I need help is part of the reason why men don't do it very easily or we recriminate ourselves at each other when we do do it but that's an entirely other podcast that I'm probably not going to touch because the internet doesn't take kindly to people talking about men's health Um, in my experience anyway so oh god where was I before I went down that bloody bitter rabbit hole Evolutionary reasons. Yeah, guilt reasons. It makes you want to change. Uh, Joy is infectious. It really is. One person, when you smile, if you smile and open your hands towards another person, they are more likely to do the same and experience the same emotion. It really is infectious. So is laughter. There's a reason why laughter is infectious in our brain, to encourage us to do it. Which is why some people, when they hear laughter, will just laugh no matter if they find something funny. Yawning has a similar reflex. We don't really know why. Yawning's a bit... We don't really know why yawning is a thing and why it is so um, infectious. But just think of any other emotion you might have. Um, Despair protects us. It's a protective mechanism. It's to make us sort of walk away from our, our whatever we're going through a little bit so that... So the same depression that we can armor ourselves against the negativity that we're, the negative event that we're experiencing. They're all protection. And I can talk a little bit about defense, like uh, defense mechanisms we have with it, or everyone has within themselves to protect them. Shame, I have, I think it's literally social cohesion. I think shame is so damaging that you go to any length to not experience it and thus you shape yourself to the society that you're in. But that that doesn't seem right to me, but that's the only answer I can think of. So I'm interested. If anyone has any clues, hit me up. <laughs> I have no idea how you would do that. Hit me up. Let's talk about shame. Let's talk about what possible evolutionary reason it might have to exist because we don't have anything that doesn't serve an evolutionary purpose because we're evolutionary creatures. We, we, we evolutionary. It's <laughs> a dumb statement. We evolved. Our brain does one thing. It keeps us the fuck alive. That is why traumatic events stuff us up the way that they do. And I'm going to dovetail right into this topic because I'm done talking about the other one. 
when you have a traumatic event happen to you, you your brain looks for a narrative. Like, actually, anything happens to you. Someone says something bad about you. Some negative event happens to you. Your brain looks for why. It wants to know why. It does not give a shit what the answer is. It just wants to know why. So it comes up with a why. And then once it's found that reason, that's the reason. It's usually not a very good one. It's usually not a very objective one. It's usually a self, self-punishing self reason. When you experience trauma, trauma is a kind of brain damage. Trauma is a kind of brain damage. I just repeated myself twice. Why did I do that? I think I had something else to say, but I didn't add anything to the sentence. That's a pretty autistic thing to do. You have coping mechanisms for that trauma that allow you to stay alive. Your brain has created a mechanism to keep you alive. I'm going to use myself as an example. I am an avoidant person. Because I am autistic, my sensitivity is dialed up to a million. I am hypersensitive to other people's emotions, to my own emotions. My emotions are dialed up all the way. They are overwhelming to me and largely nameless. Like I, they're so overwhelming, I can't work out what they are most of the time. So in my youth, when I was constantly triggered, constantly overexposed, constantly everything, and I was bullied badly at school. I'm six foot four, but I was bullied. Um, I was always punished for being tall and strong, and I never acted on it. I had an absolutely terrible time at school. And so I learned that the only safe way to cope with having emotional responses to my external world and my internal world that were so friggin' strong, that were so overwhelmingly strong, was to bury them, was to avoid them on a conscious level. So that's kind of like can't remember the term for that, but anyway, like push them under, put them under the ice and freeze over the top. So when I feel a peak emotional response to something, it usually lasts between one and two seconds and then it's gone and it feels great while it's there. I'm finally feeling something. I'm feeling strong. Oh, it's gone already because my brain can't handle it. I don't know how to fix this about myself, but that is my response to trauma. That is my... And it turns out, when in the process of working out I was autistic, we thought I had social anxiety disorder. I still do, but we call it autism. And I actually cultivated depression on an unconscious, then conscious level to deal with how anxiety-inducing and sensory overload-inducing and meltdown-inducing social situations were because I didn't get them and I didn't feel comfortable in them. And I was forced into them. Yeah, constantly forced into them. So the only safe thing for me to do was to detach. That was my armour, not feeling. And it sucked balls. I thought I was a serial killer. I thought I was a sociopath because I couldn't feel anything. And that's where masking comes in from as well. Masking is something that you do to appease the world around you so that you feel less confronted or less attacked or less threatened by it. Sometimes masking is a conscious, sometimes an unconscious process. So that's the way that my brain has created defense mechanisms for me. Everyone has them. Your brain wants you to survive. 
eat sucks at keeping you alive and healthy in a modern society or a even an agricultural society because our brains are not they don't have any well let me, all right, let me show you a quote we have paleolithic brains our brains are still the same but largely the same as our hunter-gatherer ancestors stone age ancestors so we have paleolithic brains the institutions in our lives, the governments, the laws, the, the codes, the ethics, the social things, the Overton window largely, that we live inside of, they're all largely medieval. They started, especially in British colonial imperialist countries, um, they're largely, yeah, they're, they're, they're largely medieval. They sort of started then, refined, and this is where we find ourselves today. We have godlike technology that can take advantage of all of the defaults and the disconnects in our psychology. So our brains haven't necessarily created an optimum scenario for how to deal with stressful and painful and traumatic events that happen to our brain in a modern social setting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can't really hear you. I don't know why I do that, but I'm pausing for clarity. It's the same reason. Why am I gesticulating while I'm driving? No one can hear me. So, yeah, your, your brain will just pick a, a way of coping with what's going on that fits its narrative, that fits the story in a, that, that you've given it or that you've unconsciously given it. If this happens when you're a child, you are woefully inequipped to deal with it, and so it can manifest as different kinds of trauma. Different kinds, sorry, different kinds of defense mechanisms. If you're a man, and delve into this again, you are not encouraged to generate a healthy emotional toolkit when you are being raised. Which means a lot of men have the ability, the emotional, the ability to regulate, emotional regulation ability of a 10 year old because they were never allowed to cultivate the skills of gener of the skills to be better at it. It's considered weak and unmanly. I've gone. I've managed to find myself on social, various social medias, on the side of the rejection-sensitive dysphoria that I live with and I deal with. I go on Instagram or TikTok or something like that, and I open up a video. Within three videos, I've encountered a, pers a, a woman saying, "All men suck. All men are trash. All men are rapists." Objectively. I know that that's not true about me because I'm not one of those things. Objectively, I know that there is some merit to the argument it's all men until it's none. There is also a there's also a counter argument against that that's just as valid, but there is some validity to that argument. My brain cannot tell the difference between they cannot be objective about it. My brain assumes they are talking directly to me. And it hurts. It really, really fucking hurts. And I try to avoid it. But on the count, on the flip side of that, I also got to let it get a lot of validation. So there's a lot of accounts out there that are 
designed to help guys who don't have this emotional regulation do better, deal with their codependence, deal with their, their emotional toolkit, missing chunks of it. And just to say, hey guy, you're going through life, you're, you're hearing this men suck message every five minutes, you're going to take that, some, even the best of us are going to take some of that, that personally some of the time, how about we just build you back up again? So I kind of unconsciously am in these spaces and I go out of my way to avoid the real misogynistic shit stains. Um, but sometimes it can be very subtle, hard to avoid. And I'm not the most mm, clued in guy because of my autism. Yeah, where was I? So yeah, I talk a lot about like it is perfectly acceptable to expect men to have to do to to try to work on themselves in an emotional regulation way that builds them up and makes them more comfortable in a that makes that makes them brings them up to a level of emotional adulthood within our society I'm trying to do this in a very non-condescending way because most of the time it comes off as incredibly fucking condescending. So yeah, we should encourage men who have not been given an emotional toolkit when they were raised to try to generate one themselves, try to learn how to take accountability, learn to work on their flaws, open up and talk more, though there are so many fucking barriers to that last one, I'll tell you, Jesus. But a soft place to land. And I'm just, I'm just now. I'm just bloviating. Is is always better. We all like a soft place to land. We all like a, like. To be, you want to say, yeah, you need to do some work. You need to work on yourself. But I have compassion for you, and will sit with you and hold your hand while you're doing it. Especially why there's a whole freaking half of our society that wasn't allowed to generate emotional regulation toolkits as children. And that's my bugbear at the moment. Is that. There's a whole lot of people out there saying that men need to do better or certain types of men need to do better and people saying, oh, we all kill, men kill themselves five, six, seven, eight, twenty times higher than women do and, and blah, blah, blah. But, and while we just need to talk more, yeah, well, we need to have the emotional toolkits. We don't have them as a general rule. As an autistic man, I can quite happily say, it's taken me 30 years of therapy to get to the place that I'm at now and I still don't have an emotional regulation toolkit. That ain't that bloody simple. And that's the autism. That's the rejection-sensitive dysphoria. I, I take all of this so insanely personally. I, I just try to avoid it now. But it's hard. It's hard to do it. It's hard to avoid it. Anyway, there's probably more information about me than you ever actually wanted. Now, let's talk about some cool science things. You've gotten this deep into the emotional ramblings of a, a autistic person, but what's some cool science things? I have a piece of rock at home, well, actually, in my father's house. It's a piece of rose quartz that I pulled out of a farm, a rock in a farm, in a farm near Broken Hill in Central Australia. This rose quartz is older than life. I love time. <laughs> I really do that. Uh, there's a gentleman that I follow. He's a Portuguese on TikTok. He's a Portuguese man living in London. Um, 
he talks a lot, he's just put a video out, he talks about how he's got a bowl that's from the Bronze Age. It's not a particularly beautiful bowl, it's not a museum quality piece, it's just from the Bronze Age. But it's been handled by so many hundreds and thousands of people over time. This, this rock that is older than life has a story that is three odd billion years old. And I guess that's the way I link these two pieces of information is that we all have a story. How did the 10, the, the 10 billion, <laughs> it's older than the solar system. How did the 3 billion year or probably 2 billion year life has really had been around for about 1.9, I think off the top of my head. Um, how did that rock get to here? What is its story? And it's probably considering for most people don't understand geology, quite a pedestrian one, erosion plus movement plus uplift and blah, 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 blah. But for me, it's, it's fascinating. The landscape literally moving and breathing and exhaling and inhaling and shifting and eroding and building up and baking under the sun and being ground down to glaciers and being hit by the occasional meteorite. Volcanoes coming up from underneath you like a pimple. You know, a highly explosive thing that erupts in the range of nuclear bombs kind of pimple, but a pimple nonetheless. There's this gentleman that I follow in his Bronze Age bowl, how many people must have touched that? The, the collective imprints of a thousand psychologies, of a thousand human minds hitting this, this bowl, using the bowl to store fruit, to store nuts, to store anything. He put, lem he put lemons in it. How many acids are going to etch from fruit? You're going to slowly etch that bowl in ways that we can't perceive that you might if you've got very sensitive fingerprints. So that has a story. It has a narrative. You have a narrative. I have a narrative as well from my childhood to now. The events that have shaped you. This is, there's a classic argument in, in human developmental psychology called nature versus nurture. Nature is, this is the genetics this is your lineage, the genetics and the way you grew in the womb to that shows what you're going to be like. And then nurture is your experience, your environment and how did you get to here and what happened to you to get to you to here. Back in the sort of scientific revolution, people were fiercely one or the other. They were either you can only be a product of your genes or you can only be a product of your experience. Uh, consensus has now broadly come to that obviously it's fucking both. You start with your genes and then life happens to you. You have a story. With your genes, the story is your ancestors. It's what happened to you, them. And that's relevant because there is such a thing as inher inherited epigenetic trauma. I think it's epigenetic inherited trauma. Yes, it's the wrong way around. Inher inherited epigenetic trauma. I'm, it doesn't matter. Those are the right words. Sort them out yourself. And so the... And I think it happens more likely from male, your fathers, and men feel it more keenly, but I'd have to look that up. I don't, I know that it's definitely got a correlation with male DNA, as opposed to from your mother, you're more likely to get it from your father. So you could end up having to deal with the same traumas as your father. You might have the same triggers as your, as your father. So that's your narrative before you were even born. And then from birth, we might have well-meaning parents, but humans aren't built with an instruction manual on how to parent. So you're going to get fucked up. It's inevitable. You're going to have something. They're going to get... Parenting is awful. Like, it's just sleep deprivation. And then you make stupid decisions when you're sleep deprived. 
and maybe you don't attend to the baby when it's crying fast enough because you've just done it 15 times today and you've got postpartum depression and that baby has an abandonment complex now. Yay! It's hard. The story of your life and the because of the way the human brain operates, the story, the narrative of your life is going to have a fixation on the downs rather than the up. Because the primary mechanism of your brain is to keep you safe. And it does that by either changing your environment or modifying your environment. Okay? When you meet someone and you give them, this, you can actually see this happening in real time. Say if you're talking to, you, you have an opinion and you're talking to two people and you say this thing that they don't believe in, one person goes, oh, I am convinced by your evidence. I'm going to believe, I'm going to choose to believe that. They're changing themselves to adapt to the environment of the new information. The other one's stonewalls. Nope, I'm not going to, they repudiate that. They change their environment to fit them fit themselves so there's two two ways it can go and that might explain really intransigent people that's also linked into shame and insecurity and, and look i'm talking about psychology and trauma and everything like that it, it ain't that fucking simple it really isn't it's so horrendously complicated you if you ever reduce someone down to a one-line biography of what you think that person is like you're grossly underestimating the complexity of their life, their lived experiences and their character. And it's hard because empathy is not... Capitalism has encouraged us not to show empathy. We're not hot-running empathy taps. So it's hard. Sometimes you run out of compassion. Sometimes you run out of empathy. But I guess I didn't have an overarching point with this. I just wanted to discuss it. I'm home now anyway. So I'll wrap up in a second. The... The story of your life and the reactions that you've had and the traumas that you've had and the experiences and emotions that you've experienced are not always going to be good. And your brain will fixate on the bad. As I, That's the point I was making and I got trailed off. Your brain wants you to survive and surviving in the wild is vaguely traumatic. There's never really enough to eat. God forbid you get a cut because you'll die of an infection. Um, you're worried about that storm that's coming because it might, it might blow over your settlement, it might flood your settlement, it might set a dry lightning strike fire and burn your settlement. You're, you've got to be wary of your environment. That tree, Those trees over there next to the nice, convenient, clean water source might contain a tiger. So you have to treat it dangerously. There's all kind of interesting cognitive measures that go into... Uh, one of the, and I'll go into this, and one of the ones that I find the most fascinating is that we find it difficult to think rationally in a consistent basis because our brains have evolved to think emotionally because it's faster. If you think rationally about how to escape being attacked by a tiger, you ain't going to breed because you're going to die young. If you have an inbuilt fight or flight response that reacts to something that is vaguely tiger-shaped, <coughs> you react faster. And humans are really good at fast reactions because we evolved in a wild scenario. So we're limited by our physiology, by our inbuilt biases and psychologies. And when it comes to complicated sources of trauma and nuance in society, um, 
we we don't really do very well with it because we're not designed we're, we're not haven't evolved to be particularly good at it because we're more concerned about not being hit by a tiger now that's a broad stroke you can find examples of where we are good and and where our neurology and our physiology is much more complex than that and it does have adaptions to certain kinds of trauma it would make sense we our society evolved largely as a response to deal with giant-headed babies and i've said Thing. I think I've said giant-headed babies like a hundred times in my podcast so far. Um, and that might include various subtle definitions. I am not a psychologist or a neurologist, and I'm interested in that. I'm probably might be going to do a psychology degree later this year. And so we just, yeah, we all have net. We all have stories. We'll have journeys we've been on. We all have traumas from things that didn't work for us. We all have biases in which our brain doesn't work very well. And we all have difficulties navigating that. So we're all broadly the same in that way. Whether you're a white man or a white woman or a black man or a black woman or a homosexual man or a homosexual woman or a transgender a transgender man or a transgender woman, pain is pain. But even then, you can't... People obviously go through worse things. People obviously go through an event where that, that, that pain is horrendous. It is awful. That event is tr- horrifyingly traumatising, and I can't work out how. And this causes a lot of cognitive dissonance. So some people who react negatively to someone's story of pain is usually because they have undergone traumatic events in their life and they feel a certain amount of pain over something. And then when you encounter something that is worse when it is objectively worse than what you've gone through you might resent that they have a more you've come you make an assessment that they have more right to their pain than you do to yours i don't i don't think anyone should compare because pain is pain Uh, i'm sure someone could deconstruct that because i'm a white man i come with that from a position of privilege um it's very easy for me to say pain is pain. What's the alternative? You want to rank that shit? You want to make it a suffering Olympics? I know, I know it's shit. I know it's shit. I mean, I'm sure you could combine a create a compelling argument as to why in, in, in an intersection, an argument about intersectionality, someone is in a demonstrably more painful position, like their pain is worse than yours because of the degrees of intersectionality. I'm sure there is a coherent argument to be made there, but I'm at the beginning of my healing journey and I don't think you should compare pain. It's not constructive. Compare events, definitely, but you can't walk into someone's mind and articulate and quantify exactly how much pain they're experiencing and how much it's shattered their world. Like... Uh, when I was in a relationship in my 20s, it turned out the woman had cheated on me and she just came one, home one night and said, I've been cheating on you for a few months. And I said, okay, have you stopped? Yes, thank you for telling me. Let's work through this because I had absolutely no self-value whatsoever. 
I just ignored what I was actually feeling and said, no, 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 I don't have the right to be angry. I'm not allowed to be in pain. I'm not allowed to be this, that, on the other. So I have to be okay with it and just say, all right, let's work on this and let's get past it. And just, I fucking ignored it completely. And that has done me an unbelievable amount of psychological damage. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate myself for doing that. I really do. I, I wish I took that more seriously. Um, it broke me. Like, it changed me on a fundamental level. I, I stopped trusting people as easily then because I'm an autistic man. I feel things very strongly, but I don't know how to... I'm bad at communicating them because I'm not given a toolkit to do it. Um, so I'm clunky and awkward in it. Whether or not that's a bad thing, who knows. Anyway, now I'm just bloviating. I guess the essence is be kind to yourself, be kind to the other people around you. Because you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what their narrative is. And because of the world we live in, you can pretty much guarantee that everyone's had a pretty shitty time of things. So, yeah. Be kind to yourselves. Look after each other. And be gentle with each other's foibles and weaknesses and lack of capacity, especially for neurodivergent folk. Life is hard enough as it is. Anywho... Once again, thank you for listening to me. This is Travel Thoughts. My name is Simon. I will post this online, which obviously I will do because you're listening to it. Anyway, that was dumb. Bye.